Thank you for choosing to listen to this episode today. Before we begin, I just wanted to let you know that recently, Talks Talk changed its name to Talks Now. So during this episode, at multiple points, you'll hear us refer to Talks Talk and the website Talks Talk. But you can check out all that great content at Talks Now T O X N O W dot O R G and follow us at our Twitter feed at Talks Now. So same great people, same great content, just a slightly different name. Thanks for listening. We'll continue with the episode now. Hello, and welcome to another exciting edition of Talks Talk. This is Matt Zuckerman with the UMass Division of Toxicology and Department of Emergency Medicine. We are going to talk about a very pervasive issue on this uh, podcast. We're going to be talking with uh, Tim Wiegand at Rochester about alcohol withdrawal, a fascinating subject where there was a lot of discussion at a recent uh, conference pre-symposium. But before we get to the segment, I want to remind listeners that they can check out more of our older episodes on iTunes or at our website, TalksTalk.org, that's T-O-X-T-A-L-K.org, or uh, subscribe uh, to what's going on with us through our Facebook page or uh, Twitter feed. Also using the Twitter feed for some more microblogging about some issues that don't make it onto the show. And it's a, become a great forum for listener feedback and interaction. So check us out at Talks Talk. Any suggestions for further shows or uh, things you want to hear about, send them to us at TalksTalk at TalksTalk.org. Without further ado, here's the show. Hi, this is Matt Zuckerman with another edition of Talks Talk, and today I am talking with Tim Wiegand from University of Rochester, toxicologist, mainly because at a recent March Alcohol Abuse Academy, there was a lot of discussion about different approaches towards treating alcohol withdrawal or, or treating patients who are withdrawing from alcohol. And I wanted to kind of touch base with you because you had some interesting insights. First of all, thanks for agreeing to talk to me. All right. Thanks, Matt. Appreciate being available. It's a pleasure to talk about alcohol dependence withdrawal. There were some interesting protocols and practices that were discussed at the Spring Symposium. Yes. To me, it's a little bit of an understatement. And that's the other reason why I wanted to touch base with you is because I feel like there's there's sort of two different worlds when it comes to treating alcohol withdrawal right now. And there's the kind of benzos, benzos, benzos world, which is very familiar to myself and many of our listeners. And then one of the great things about this academy, and thanks for being a part of it, and I'd highly recommend them to anybody, the uh, pre-symposia that uh, ACMT puts on. But one of the great things about the academy was it brought people from really all over the world to talk about different treatments in alcohol withdrawal. And I think the best kind of conference is something where you you learn about something that you didn't realize you didn't know. So how would you summarize uh, sort of your own approach or, or kind of the proceedings or what happened? The conference itself, in addition to looking at different managements for withdrawal, we had perspectives on treatment of agitation and intoxicated patients. You know, so the, the initial presentations to the emergency department as well as transport, we had experts from Australia talking about management strategies and then discussion on differences in practice. You know, so the, the agitated alcoholic, we talked about medical legal issues that arise in the emergency department and hospital. Mike Holland reviewed the biomarkers that are present when you have exposure to alcohol, the 80-hour alcohol test, for example, ethyl sulfate and ethyl glucuronide markers that are used in monitoring programs 
Ken Connor looked at some of the epidemiology around alcohol use and suicide in various statistics in terms of the national vital data system. And it was much more than just a symposium looking at alcohol withdrawal. Now, that said, I think that was that was uh, the primary interest. You know, there were a lot of different practices. There was the discussion of just simply the, the uh, symptom-triggered approach with benzodiazepines and comparison to fixed-dose protocols. Uh, Jose Maldonado brought a very unique perspective from Stanford looking at alpha-2 agonists uh, like clonidine uh, or even guanfacine or dexmedetomidine and benzosparing protocols, talking about how some of the treatments that we have currently may actually contribute more to the delirium that we see or some of the morbidity that we see with alcohol withdrawal while taking away some of the autonomic effects. There may be some consequences that we pay. There may be a better way of looking at withdrawal. And in my experience, some of the things that he's used, I've used some experience with dexmedetomidine in the ICU with some of the more severe cases that it's been fairly effective adjunctively, and, and I came home from the conference thinking that there's a lot more to learn about this. We need to look at different protocols. We're often using a particular protocol because it's simply the choices we have at the hospital or part of the drop-down boxes that you click with the electronic record. We just get used to using that time and time again, and so you don't question different ways or have some flexibility. New York University, the, the fellows from NYU and uh, Lewis Nelson talked about some protocols that they were forced to use because of the shortage of IV benzos. They looked at um, oral benzodiazepines. We also talked about them using barbiturates or, or more IV phenobarbital and you know, out of necessity with, with the benzodiazepine shortages, people found that there are some other ways that actually were they were pleasantly surprised to see very effective, if not, you know, even more effective in terms of resource utilization. So. No, I think, yeah, I think that's that's definitely true. Um, I mean, so that what you just said is there's a lot of stuff that, that you just said that I think is, is, is very true. And um, anyone who's at the conference is very familiar with it. But just to kind of tease out some of that, because there was a lot of information there. So uh, you're right. The, the conference was about sort of all aspects of alcohol. And I feel like alcohol is one of the oldest I mean, it probably is one of the oldest intoxications, and um, a lot of times people feel been there, done that, but still we're learning more and new things about it. It's also one of the most common sort of dependence issues we see both in our emergency departments and in our toxicologic services to the point where I think sometimes we forget about it. If you look at the the toxic database that uh, ACMT has put together to kind of register toxic exposures, there was a whole poster at one of the conferences about how alcohol is only present in a minority of overdoses. But I have to say from personal experience, alcohol is present in a majority of overdoses. It's just that we often don't consider it as a co-ingestant. And so we don't check that box. And so I think alcohol is so common that sometimes we miss it. And and so the big issue isn't just when people are drinking, but also when they stop drinking. And so drinking alcohol as kind of a, this is a very simplistic explanation, but as a GABA agonist and your body sort of adapts to, to that agent. And it's a terrible agent. It's short acting. It induces its own metabolism. It's got a number of other side effects, but it's it's available. And then when all of a sudden you stop at cold turkey, you're left with kind of the alcohol withdrawal syndrome, which has various symptoms in terms of just getting the shakes or the jitters or getting kind of an adrenergic stimulation with tachycardia and hypertension. And then I don't know if you've ever seen that movie Lost Weekend about the um, alcohol withdrawal. Uh, I think that was in the 50s. That book is by Charles Jackson. It's one of my favorite books. I'm interested in kind of popular culture and intoxicants and how they're portrayed. And Charles Jackson wrote the book. Ray Milan, I think, is the actor who won an Oscar for the Lost uh, his role as the uh, main character in The Lost Weekend. And that book clearly shows that 
it's the absence of alcohol that causes withdrawal, the way that they discuss the characters searching for the morning drink to still the nerves, the tremors, to quiet his restless soul. And at that time, actually, science was still talking about alcohol withdrawal and delirium and the, the signs, the autonomic dysregulation that you mentioned, the anxiety and the tremors as being from chronic neuritis or that you know anybody that exposed themselves to this, this poison over time would have this, the consequences, this you know, whether it's a neuritis or what, however you call it, it wasn't from the absence of alcohol. Also, getting back to that poster, that poster that you mentioned was one of the projects I was involved in looking at toxic, and, and that's exactly, your your points are exactly what we concluded, is that it, it was probably underappreciated in the registry. It was coded for in a minority of cases, but I think like a lot of things toxicologists are familiar with, or even emergency medicines are familiar with, it's just, you know, alcohol's present, that's not really the main concern. And, you know, looking at my own consult practice, we see about 600 patients a year related to overdose in the hospital, and Ken Connor, one of the speakers at the symposium, and I've looked at the role of alcohol in suicide attempts and looked at poisoning severity, just for lack of a better marker, we looked at poisoning severity score related to when somebody uses alcohol as part of their ingestion or whether they just have an intentional suicide attempt that doesn't involve alcohol. And interestingly, we found two different groups. We've actually found that alcohol, the presence of alcohol during the suicide attempt or the intentional self-poisoning didn't increase the poisoning severity. Although there were two groups, I think, they were, that averaged apart, needs to, we need to look, figure out how to look at this, that an individual that drinks alcohol has no intention of hurting themselves, of having a deliberate self-poisoning act, and then they get intoxicated and then kind of in a disinhibited frenzy, they ingest pills, usually in an argument with their significant other or kind of in a leery moment, and then it's kind of a lack of a better term, half-assed suicide attempt in a sense, and then they're brought to the hospital very quickly. Concomitantly, there's the other group that maybe uses alcohol rather than causing the event, the mood instability. It's part of their planning. It's the potent poison part of the suicide attempt, and those probably aren't found as soon. They may be down at home, die before the hospital. The alcohol contributes to sedation with opioids, with benzos, which are common drugs found in overdose attempts, as well as the lethal ones. And so there's probably a whole population that just by analyzing this, we miss. What we did find, though, was that alcohol use disorders were associated with significant increases in poisoning severity compared to individuals that didn't have an alcohol use disorder, which was an interesting finding. It was a fairly dramatic difference in overall poison severity scores and, and the, this measure of lethality or toxicity. So, yeah, my own experience, you see alcohol all the time. It's probably present. If they don't have an alcohol use disorder, alcohol was involved in some way, shape, or form in between 25 and even up to 50%, depending on what populations you're looking at. It's, it's a common, and then other drugs as well, it's a common factor in the poisonings we see. So No, absolutely. Another. Yeah, either either it can be an abuse. And by abuse disorder, you're really, you're not even talking about the person that sort of takes a few drinks of kind of liquid courage before overdosing. It's really something that's affecting them on a daily basis and the comorbidity of alcohol kind of abuse disorder. It's interesting too, the, the vernacular and the terminology in terms of alcohol abuse disorder versus talking about dependence versus just layman's term of alcoholic yeah, and, and just affecting lethality is kind of an interesting finding. Uh, and that's not even counting the sequela of families with alcoholism or trauma-related alcoholism violence that often sometimes triggers or predisposes patients who 
have underlying mood disorders or other predisposition towards self-harm. Um, so in that, in that movie, essentially Lost Weekend, he, he stops he stops drinking and he, and he starts to hallucinate and see bats and it's pretty dramatic. I, I heard that before they added music to that movie, people were laughing when they saw it and they added the dramatic soundtrack and it was a lot better. And then even some of the great studies from the early 20th century were looking at alcoholism and kind of documenting the delirium that can occur with alcohol withdrawal. Some of them are really great to read and not always so ethical in terms of their practices, in terms of getting convicts sort of addicted to alcohol and then stopping them cold turkey. And then it seems like there was this shift where there was an understanding that you had to do something to combat the withdrawal symptoms because a subsegment of alcohol withdrawal patients will go on to have full-blown seizures and autonomic instability and, and death. And it seems like, at least for people that trained, when I've trained, the answer to that has long been GABA agonists and typically high-dose benzodiazepines. That's right. Well, even before recognizing that it was the GABA agonists and high-dose benzodiazepines, alcohol withdrawal and alcohol is present in a lot of hospitalized patients as it is now. And there were systems that looked at, well, how do we reduce the morbidity and mortality from this? And what went from basically strap the patient down and let them ride it out or other bizarre therapies, hydrotherapy, insulin shock therapy, and all sorts of bizarre things. People realize that, well, wait a minute, the way that these individuals are getting sick is their temperature goes up, they're dehydrated, they're not eating. And so some of the pillars of medicine, Cecil, universities, Boston University uh, systems were looking at, okay, let's take away the restraints. That's making this excitation worse. So the consequences, the rhabdo, the dehydration, the excitation, let's feed them, let's hydrate them, let's treat the concomitants, nutritional deficiencies, giving them nutrition electrolytes. And then the drugs for sedation at the time, take away the excitation, we'll treat them with the bromides, the chloral hydrate, the, the peraldehyde, which actually in the last weekend, there's a great scene when he's in a detox and he gets the peraldehyde and it's also in the book described his impression of taking this nasty rotten sulfurous kind of beverage and then his nerves are quiet and he's asking the the uh, physician or the nurse at detox where can I get some of this stuff this is wonderful stuff this is if I had peraldehyde I could and his thoughts are like I could drink forever and I wouldn't have to deal with the consequences because I'd have this magical manna to take away the withdrawal so but yes then as people realize that wait a minute as we calm the body people do better and barbiturates were used and then benzodiazepines have long been the mainstay of calming the excitation. There's a cross-tolerance between the GABA agonists, although it's somewhat of an indirect cross-tolerance in a sense because alcohol is so much more complex than just simply a GABA agonist. There's glutamates activity, there's calcium-dependent processes, there's the chloride channel, obviously, activation, which is involved in the GABA system, or the GABA system modulates as well. But there's a lot of systems that are deranged with alcohol, and the benzodiazepine helps a majority of it and can be very effective at taking care of withdrawal. But as you know, individuals discuss, there's certainly situations where that may not be ideal, or there may be limits to the effect that we can get from benzodiazepines, or we can even see toxicity from benzodiazepines, just delirium in and of itself. Yeah, that's an excellent point. And that's, I feel like with alcohol withdrawal, it's like a lot of things in toxicology. You learn it and you think it's really easy. And then as you do more of it, you realize how complicated it is. I think treating acetaminophen toxicity is the exact same thing. Oh, there's an omogram. And then, and then you realize that every case has its slight problems. And with alcohol withdrawal, you know, if you're sitting in a, in a lecture classroom, you learn, okay, you're going to give either diazepam or lorazepam, some form of 
symptom-based therapy, often a CUA or other withdrawal scale, where you watch the shakes and you watch some of the subjective complaints, you might watch the vital signs, and then you give benzo agonist, and you can tell the patient, we're just giving you a pharmacologic replacement for alcohol. But what you soon realize is that in a lot of especially heavy drinkers, the amount of benzo that you need to get to, the amount of diazepam or lorazepam that you need to get to, to get their symptoms under control, creates a huge amount of sedation and confusion. And oftentimes, I think we talk about how it's due to the differences in GABA receptor subtypes. I mean, just the chronic alcoholism can induce a change in the types of GABA receptors that you have over time, and the agents hit different receptors. And so it's not a one-to-one replacement, really. And it's certainly what happens. I think Lewis Nelson made a statement about this uh, coming from a heavy benzodiazepine use institution at New York saying, you know, we get them to the point where we give them enough benzo that they're sleepy. And, you know, they're not functional. They're not going to go to work. They're not going to drive a car, but we've got the symptoms under control and they're sleepy. And everyone acknowledges that typically the alcohol withdrawal patient that you have, quote unquote, treated appropriately is relatively unconscious versus if they had gone out and had their typical day of alcohol, they would probably talk to you. These are people that work jobs. These are people that raise kids, and you wouldn't even necessarily be able to tell it. And so obviously, this is telling us that alcohol is not the same as a benzodiazepine. And I think that and the treatment failures, people talk about that guy that you see where you just gave more and more and more benzo to the point where you had to intubate them and put them on propofol or give them barbiturates is an example where there's a failure there. And so that's kind of what led to the idea that there has to be another solution and maybe giving adjuvant medications might be helpful. Yeah, you brought up two different points. And one of them is the toxicity or the consequences of treating the alcohol withdrawal. And then the other one is the point where we have an alcohol-dependent patient that we can't replace the degree of inhibition with the benzodiazepines. And there's a different mechanism and the way that they work at the GABA receptor with opening the channels and, you know, due to kinetic limitations and, you know, the opening and the closing of the door that takes time, eventually you reach a ceiling effect with a benzodiazepine and how they interact with the GABA uh, channel. And there are patients that you just can't get the same degree of inhibition and then you have the uh, toxicity in, in some examples, extreme examples of the IV drips of lorazepam, you get propylene glycol toxicity trying to keep up, or just uh, an ineffective treatment, and, and you've got to move on to barbiturates or dexmedetomidine or propofol, you know, hitting it from multiple different directions. No, absolutely. And then, so just to clarify, so essentially we were using a lot of barbiturates, which are great GABA agonists and work well to for anxiolysis and then in higher doses for GABA agonism. We've since shifted as a medical community to benzodiazepines just because of the safety threshold in terms of the apnea associated with barbiturates and and all those movie star deaths. And the classic, I think, testable toxicology notable fact is so benzodiazepines increase the frequency of GABA agonism and chloride channel opening and barbiturates increase the duration. And so they're just a little more potent. One of the reasons why you give benzos first for seizure and then eventually you get to barbiturates, which are more effective but are possibly going to affect the airway. And then also with propofol, this other great sort of agent that has some Propofol hits a number of receptors, but including GABA agonism. But then you also mentioned dexmedetomidate, which works through a totally different pathway. And so do you want to explain why that's become more popular? So dexmedetomidate or Presidex is kind of like a titratable form of clonidine in a sense. Although it's much more potent, 
and more selective for the alpha-2 receptor. Clonidine is an alpha-2 receptor agonist, which alpha-2 in the CNS will be presynaptic receptor, and agonism will actually blunt the outflow of noradrenaline from the cell, so it acts as a sympatholytic. And areas of the brain that control arousal, like the locus ceruleus, if you have a drug like clonidine or Presidex and you have the sympatholytic effect, you can blunt the activation both upwards and downwards. For example, locus ceruleus with noradrenaline going up through the reticular activating system, that cascade of excitation is analogous to a fire. You know, you got alcohol withdrawal and a fire, and, you know, and they're both kind of, in a, in a sense, this excitatory process that it can spread or it can burn itself out. And when it spreads, an alcohol withdrawal goes up and then it goes down and up is the delirium, the excitation, the seizures, and down is the tachycardia, the hypertension, the diaphoresis, and they're all certainly interrelated. Well, the clonidine or the dexmedetomidine will put that out at the level of the brainstem and decrease the excitatory transmission upwards and downwards. The other beautiful thing about dexmedetomidine, it is different than clonidine, and clonidine is an imidazoline, which it hits a separate receptor than the alpha-2 and causes sedation. And we've all seen clonidine overdoses. They're sedate, comatose even, and they can even be a degree of respiratory depression, the bradycardia, hypotensive. Well, you get enough dexmedetomidine, you can get the bradycardia, and it can have the sympatholytic effect on the blood pressure as well. But you usually don't see any degree of respiratory depression, which is the nice part about using it in a patient that's been severely ill or adjunctively to benzos and barbiturates or propofol that's gotten a lot of these medications in the ICU, you can often take a very sick patient, give them fairly high doses of the dexmedetomidine and avoid intubation. And in general, that's where Presidex or dexmedetomidine has been used or argued that it's effective in the ICU. It keeps people from being intubated, whereas the other drugs that we give for sedation, for just standard ICU sedation, if we give enough of them, we're going to have to deal with the consequences or we're going to have to, you know, getting an adequate sedation means also there's a degree of respiratory depression and we've got to intubate and then we've got all the ventilator-associated problems. Well, Presidex will give them that sedation anxiolysis. We can have them in the ICU and take care of their medical issues, but we don't have to intubate them and, and deal with it. So there's a lot of benefits potentially adjunctively with Presidex. And Presidex, It's been used historically for withdrawal, everything from neonatal abstinence syndrome and opioid withdrawal to complex baclofen pump failures. There's abstracts in Clintox about dexmedetomidine use for baclofen pump failure for um, even excitatory syndromes like cocaine intoxication. I use actually Presidex regularly for bupropion or venlafaxine ingestion where you've got an amphetamine-like or a lot of adrenergic excitation. It's not directly treating things like seizures, although it's blunting this excitatory cascade. And once you blunt that and decrease the propagation, it's a nice agent. You don't get all of this other effect that you get with the benzos or barbiturates, or it works well with them concomitantly. That's definitely interesting. And and I think it's a promising area of study and and there's studies on it. I think it depends on sort of where you are and where you practice. And to some people, using Presidex for this indication is is old hat. To others, it's a little unusual. I'm always a little bit of a nervous Nelly, and I always have to ask why. The two concerns I have about Presidex, I'm sure it's a great drug. I see it being used more and more in our ICU population. But then oftentimes, I'll see the patient who's on an antipsychotic, opiates, benzos, maybe barbiturate, 
and Presidex. And so you get this cocktail of medications, all of which hitting different receptors and different things. And then it becomes a question of what do we take off first, or if the patient is delirious, or if they're having other concerning findings, what's causing what. And it seems like with Presidex, it's a fantastic medication, and it's probably incredibly useful. I just worry sometimes that we're, we're running before we've walked, and I'm seeing it sort of thrown onto patients. And then when you try to talk to people about why it was used, not everyone's as well thought out and as detail-oriented as you. And sometimes it can be tricky to sort of tease that out. And then the other thing that scares me, uh, and this is also the discussion at the conference where Dr. Maldonado from Stanford was talking about how he's trying to use a benzo-sparing therapy, and it seems like a lot of that is using clonidine, so a different sympatholytic, is if I have a seizing patient that's seizing, I can make the motor activity stop with a paralytic, but I haven't calmed down the underlying cause in terms of the electrical activity in the brain. And I think that probably it seems like Presidex and Clonidine do help to decrease that. Uh, I noticed you said noradrenaline. Are you, did you trained in Britain or, uh, but decrease the, the norepi and the dopaminergic release. But it's always a question as to whether or not that's masking the overall symptoms, which in theory GABA agonists help to treat. Or is that actually by decreasing the cycle of adrenergic stimulation that goes on to cause these vital sign abnormalities, that goes on to cause these seizures and agitation, by giving those medications and sort of stopping the cycle, whether or not that really is the best way to do it? Well, some of our exposures to presidiotics are going to be in very messy patients that are really complex. The one that's on phenobarb, propofol, fentanyl, midazolam, drip, and dex is not a great example. It may be because there's messy decision-making in what would be the effective sedation or treatment for overdose or withdrawal or whatever the patient's got going on, or just that it's a really sick and complicated patient, that it's really tough to control their sedation. So that shouldn't be confused, I think, with the opportunity that using that agent allows for blunting some of the effects that cause the complications downstream if we use it early on. So in my own practice, for example, I've got someone in the ICU, and I'm thinking, well, is this an appropriate patient to recommend dexmedetomidine? And the reasons I'm recommending it is to potentially spare our other agents and the toxicity of other agents, and then whether or not maybe that if I use it early, can I not, it's not going to treat seizures like you, like you mentioned, but it might prevent that cascade of events that eventually result in seizure and then allows me not to have to go to propofol or go to high-dose phenobarbital and, and benzodiazepines. If somebody has seizing and they're excited, the first-line agent for me is usually going to be a benzodiazepine. I also hear it in Rochester. I, I do use a lot of phenobarbital for specific reasons. I think it's a very effective med and allows the downstream team, nurses and hospitalists or wherever the patient ends up to have less work involved with maintaining the sedation. You usually don't have to dose as much. It's like putting a patch on somebody. That's a separate issue. But in the Presidex patient or the dexmedetomidine, ideally you start it early and it's not going to treat seizures. It's often adjunctive to benzodiazepine or even helps you lower the doses that you're going to use and then prevents a lot of the complications. There's huge variations by center and how comfortable people are with using this, whether it's used for general sedation. I mean, some ICU's main medical center or where they've got Rich Riker, who has published a lot on press index. You know, that's their go-to agent for pretty much standard sedation, and residents and um, teams get 
great training with Presidex and are familiar with using it in a lot of different patients. In other places, the only time it's going to be added is when propofol, fentanyl, versed, everything else fails. And so it's going to be added as, what, what else do we have? This We need to either paralyze them or get them under control. And so it's thrown on top. And that's not a great way to learn how to use the Presidex. That's a very complicated and stable patient that it's hard to take your experience and extrapolate it to other areas. The clonidine, I haven't used a lot of it, but I use it for opioid withdrawal and other withdrawal, and I think they're the same principles. If you catch someone early, you might be able to avoid these the need to aggressively add benzodiazepines and prevent the fire from spreading, so to speak. So there, there, there's, there certainly may be a role for that, and I'm looking for ways to add clonidine early in my patients. It is a different drug. There's a lot of toxicity that's different than Presidex, so... I need to look at what Jose had said and get some experience because it seems like he's using it fairly effectively in preventing sequela that we see with these other agents. And I'm really looking forward to seeing more research done with the protocols that he discussed. That was one of the one things that stuck out for me at this conference. And then on the side, you have New York saying, well, we had to switch to Librium because we, we didn't have IV Valium. And we found that our ICU admission rate when we switched to Librium right. dropped dramatically. And then the question was, is Librium actually much, much better than diazepam? Or is it just that people are way more comfortable giving huge doses of oral benzodiazepine that's just as toxic? But once you hit the magic number on your scale of diazepam, it's automatic ICU admission. And that really gets to the point that there was a great panel discussion from different institutions about treating this. And every single institution had a different way. And every single institution felt like their way was obviously the best way. And what it seems like we need is a large multi-site trial, because right now we've got single sites very tightly controlled. They're all sort of doing either historical controls or anecdotal controls. And they've all sort of, on some level, it seems like have religion. And everyone can't be right. And so what I'm seeing right now is there's this little fiefdoms of treatment. And it shouldn't be that if you go to one city in the U.S., you get one completely different pathway than if you go to another city in the U.S., but it seems like that's what we're evolving into. What do you see is next for sort of exploring this issue and, and kind of validating some of these treatment modalities, be it benzos, barbiturates, different types of each, adjuvant, uh, sympatholytic agents such as Presidex and clonidine? What do you see happening? Well, I think we're going to need... Then, then there's a definite need to learn other ways of managing withdrawal than what you're comfortable with. And we saw it here with the benzodiazepine shortage where people didn't have IV diazepam. We were short with three different IV benzodiazepines, midazolam, diazepam, and then lorazepam at one point. And so people had to treat a withdrawing patient. They had to either use phenobarbital or the oral benzodiazepines, or they had to get very creative in other ways. And so there's this necessity, which means you, you probably shouldn't wait until your shortage directly occurs until the first time you use IV phenobarbital. Otherwise, you're going to have complications and longer lengths of stay, all sorts of issues. The other thing is, is we're starting to understand much more at a, a receptor level, these chronic changes that occur, the interrelationship with the neurotransmitters and the receptors, and what are also the long-term effects or the out of the acute couple of days effects of giving high doses of these benzodiazepines or even barbiturates. And I think Science from the bench to the bedside will help direct more rational care. It's a hard area to study. I mean, these agents that we're using for treatment, they're not new. There's no pharmaceutical company-driven research, maybe dexmedetomidine or Presidex, but you know, there's very few 
it's hard to fund a study, and it's hard to do multi-site because of differences in protocol. The patient population is often a population that is, unfortunately, there's biases and limits for advocacy and things like that. It's a tough area to study. I think we need to do it because there's a huge burden on hospital system related to alcohol, whether it's an ICU in a range of 25 to 50% of patients that will have withdrawal or the burn trauma unit at the upper end or the ED where they're seeing this on a daily basis and just to decrease healthcare costs and improve flow and get people out of the hospitals sooner. We need to do better at this. And so, yeah, we need to focus on a mechanism to study this and get comfortable using other protocols and probably step outside of our safety zones. Yeah, I think that's definitely true, stepping outside of the safety zone. And I think if there's any one agent in toxicology that lends itself to a large multi-site trial, it's alcohol. I mean, if you want to study some of the obscure kind of synthetic cannabinoids or agents that we don't even have testing for, that's really tricky. But this is, it's one of the most common problems in society. And maybe it's just also the toxicologist attitude towards things, but it's not just that we believe something is true. We know it's true. And it seems like we all are very, very fervently in favor of our way of doing things. And so it's interesting always to see that East versus West or regional change. It's been a great discussion. I appreciate your point of view and your expertise in this area. Is there anything else that you feel like we've left out that you would like to leave listeners with or that you wanted to bring up or talk about? Uh, Well, I'd encourage listeners to take the opportunity to look at the conference. I mean, there were some fantastic talks and the resources that ACMT has with the different expertise. Maybe we can, if there's enough interest, do a follow-up symposium. Most of the sessions that I left, whether it was the group sessions and discussion, we could have gone on and on. But it's just there's limits to packing a certain amount of material in one day. So whether it would be follow-up or webinars, I think there's opportunity to put cases forth for the case conference or at national conferences, symposiums, so to continue this discussion. And the opportunity perhaps to use toxic for a national trial is, is a great idea. Hopefully we can continue the momentum and interest and whether it's necessity or just simply from drug shortage or just in favor of better treatment for the patient, you know, I hope we can move forward with this and be familiar and learn better ways to treat withdrawal. So hopefully more heads together, more talking about this. Hopefully people who listen to this, if there's any way that your institution handles it that's differently, feel free to drop a line and we'll post some literature to some of the articles that we've discussed in terms of using Presidex and other agents in alcohol withdrawal. And and I'm going to try and post a link to one of my favorite alcohol withdrawal papers that kind of talks about the rum fits and delirium and early 20th century. So uh, Dr. Wiegand, I want to thank you for taking the time to have this conversation and come on the show. I uh, hope that we get a chance to talk to you again sometime. Oh, the last thing is I would encourage people to read The uh, Lost Weekend or Leaving Las Vegas. There's also a book. and These are great movies, but uh, wonderful literature, too. Oh, yeah, these are fantastic. And you have no, you have no financial interest in Presidex. You're, you seem to be a big believer, no stock or anything like that. I have no conflicts of interest, no financial interests in dexmedetomidine or any of the other agents. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much. And that's it for another episode of Talks Talk. I want to thank you for joining me on this episode. Please check out our website. That's talkstalk.org, T-O-X-T-A-L-K.org. Also, you can uh, get in touch with us via our Twitter feed at TalksTalk, as well as our Facebook page. Anyone with any show suggestions or things they'd like to hear discussed on the show, feel free to drop us a line. 
Additionally, we've started a Flickr group where you can submit and see talks-related photos. These can be handy. A lot of us have taken these during our practice or are putting together a talk and need some good, high-quality photos for that. So feel free to check out that Flickr group. That's the Toxicology Flickr group. You can get a link to that on our website. ToxTalk is a production of the Division of Toxicology and the Department of Emergency Medicine at the University of Massachusetts School of Medicine. I'm Matt Zuckerman, signing off. Thank you.